Heavenly Father, today we put on the full armor to protect us against attack. We put on the belt of truth to protect against lies and deception. We put on the breastplate of righteousness to protect our hearts from the temptations. We put the gospel of peace on our feet to walk in your light, peace, and freedom with the Holy Spirit. We rebuke anxious thoughts. We take up your shield of faith for protection to block and destroy all the darts and threats thrown at us by the enemy. We put on the helmet of salvation to cover our minds and thoughts, reminding us that we are children of a mighty king. We are forgiven, set free, saved by the blood of Jesus. We take up the sword of the spirit, your living word, that has the power to demolish strongholds and is sharper than any double-edged sword. We come to you, Lord, in prayer daily. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. What's up, you guys? Welcome to The Imagination. I'm your host, Emma, and today I'm honored to have back on the show by popular demand, mind control educator, artist, writer, and author of the book, Rattlesnake Fire, A Memoir of Extra-Dimensional Experience, MKUltra Survivor and Targeted Individual, Environmentalist, Artist, Business Consultant, Award-Winning Journalist, and Activist Working for the Healing and Human Rights of Mind Control Subjects, Jean Eisenhower. It's an honor to have Jean back on the podcast as it's been over a decade since she last spoke up and released a three-minute video on YouTube about mind control and her abuse. And as it went viral, she began to experience online and real-life sabotage for speaking out. Her book, Rattlesnake Fire, also details her story as a victim of trauma-based mind control, being a targeted individual, and so much more. And it will be linked in the show notes below for you guys to all check out. You can actually get a signed copy from her website, which is really, really special. I know how special it is because I have my own signed copy right here. In case you missed Jean's first episode where we told part of her testimony, here's a little recap of her life. Jean was born into a multi-generational, trauma-based mind control, Freemasonic, and military family and was placed into MKUltra from birth. It wouldn't be until she was older when she'd realized she was a program multiple who was leading a double life. And ever since, she's been piecing together the story of her life while combating the warfare involved with being a targeted individual and a survivor. Jean discussed some amazing parts of her story last time, including her family and upbringing, programming tactics that were used against her as a young girl and woman, UFOs, MKUltra, Y2K, and electric mind control, and so much more. That episode also will be in the show notes, and I encourage you guys to all go check that out. check out that episode as well. This time around, Jean will be expanding on her story in MKUltra and as a targeted individual, and you'll get an, an even bigger insight into the unbreakable spirit of a survivor. Jean is not only an overcomer of things that were meant to destroy her, but she stands here today with a heart full of love and an unimaginable passion to make the world a better place. Jean is not only kind and loving, but she is an exceptional storyteller who makes listening to hard things palatable entertaining, and even funny at times. She's a bright and brilliant speaker and an eloquent and beautiful human being, and I can't wait for us all to learn more about her today. Before I finish introducing our guest, I wanted to give a quick reminder that if you're a survivor or whistleblower who wants to share your story on the imagination or who wants to share any information privately with me, you can email me at imagineabetterworld2020 at gmail.com. You can also support me on Substack at www.emmacatherine.substack.com, where I'm taking up journaling as an outlet for me to reflect on the podcast, guests, and my advocacy work. 
And all of my social links, including my Substack, are in the show notes. And I can't thank all of you enough for your unwavering love and support of this show and every incredible guest we have the honor of listening to. So you guys, without further ado, please help me in welcoming today's guest of honor, content creator, survivor, overcomer, author, podcaster, voice for the voiceless, anti-child abuse activist, hero for all children, survivors, NTI, warrior, and absolute sweetheart, Jean Eisenhower. Jean, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you, Emma. And you've made me almost cry. <laughs> um, thank you for highlighting the efforts that I've tried to make in our world. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you. You're welcome. You're Thank amazing. You the work you do for all of us. It's so important because we have been forced into hiding pretty much. And we've been isolated by um, lies told about us in our communities. And um, it's been a, a pretty hard road to uh, to walk pretty much alone. Um, so anyway, as you said, I did grow up in you know, I was born into this family um, with military, Mormons, Masons, and Hollywood in my parents' um, lives. And um, as we know, the CIA began doing mind control experiments in the 40s. And I believe that was absolutely directly related to the Nazis being invited into the United States under Operation Paperclip in the 40s. And... Uh, most people don't know that the CIA is filled in a large majority with Mormons. And so the Mormon church was also involved. And um, my mother was a fallen away Mormon, but she did take me to the Mormon church every now and then out of the blue. She didn't make my siblings go, but she took me. And uh, there were some really disturbing events, but in the interest of moving forward, because one thing I totally skipped over um, when I tried to give a huge overview of my life last time we interviewed, and I think that part one did really well cover it, but for some reason, you know, my mind just skipped over two really important years that I think um, say a lot. So when I was about six years old, there was a really strange experience of my mother just suddenly dressing me up and we got on a train and we left behind my father and my three younger siblings who were three and a half, two and a half and nine months old. And later on, and I was so happy. I mean, I've had a love of trains all my life because this train trip with my mother was the first time she ever spent any time with me. I was left alone in my bedroom, alone, for my entire childhood. Uh, all my earliest memories are of listening to the adults and wishing I could go out and be with them, but I couldn't. They would, I was just, there'd been some sort of training that I knew I didn't leave my room. So I had books and puzzles and games and crafts, endless variety always coming through, but no time with my mother I was the oldest so I was just alone and so finally suddenly we're on a train years later I said why did we go on the train trip I knew that we went to Albuquerque and she said oh I went to, we went to see my my aunt 
She did have an aunt in Albuquerque, but why in the world would we leave three young kids? Well, the next memory that I have is of being dressed in a pretty little party dress in an Air Force hangar, this big hangar filled with desks and military men that I think I recognize now as Air Force, and facing a man at a desk, and another man comes up from behind, looks back at me, looks at the man in the front, and says, pretty one, and that's about all I recall. I believe that a bunch of us MK Ultra children were being um, just brought in, and it was our first introduction, and then I have no other memories, no memory of coming home with my mother, no memories at all. But I figured out it was about that time that I began having sexual dreams, sexual nightmares, and um, and just a lot of nightmares started. And um, But I don't remember. There was a memory that could have been this year, could have been the next, and that was of standing in front of a, an easel with four little paint jars in front of me, and I was told... and. And we were all told to paint. And I'm watching all the other kids paint, and they're just busily painting. And I'm just stuck. And the this one very authoritarian woman says, oh, and I've always had a, a bad reaction to women with German accents. She goes, paint. And I said, I don't know what to paint. And she says, paint a tree. And I remember having this attitude and going, okay, I'll paint a tree. And I painted a tree that, oh, I still have. I should have brought it out. Uh, it leaned about 45 degrees over, and it was edged in black. And black wind was flowing by, and black leaves were blowing by, and the clouds, the sky was black, and everything was black with a little bit of green in there. And I just remember going, there, I'm done. I painted a tree. So I think that that was in that year. And then I don't remember anything else. And then my next memory is waking up at home and I'm in my own bed and there's something thrilling about being in my own bed. And I get up and I run into the kitchen and I tell my mom, I'm awake and I've been asleep for a long, long time. And I remember she very coldly just looked away and says, no, you haven't. You were just asleep at night. And I remember right then going, oh, my mother lies. I know that my mother lives now. And so that was the end of that memory. Um, and I might have been gone and come back again because my next memory is of summer vacation. So this, or it could have been the whole year. I, I don't know. I don't know what happened at Christmas. I should study my own um, family photos a little bit better. But um, then when I was seven years old and my birthday is in July, so it was the summertime. My parents, we all visited my grandmother in Van Nuys, California, and then the family left without me, and I was really confused. I asked why, and they said, oh, we just want you to have time with your grandmother. Well, that's kind of stupid because my grandmother and aunt lived together. My grandmother owned a restaurant and they didn't need to have a seven-year-old with them, especially since my aunt was a single mother with a 
child a little older than me. So she's a single mom living with her mother. They And they both are working in this restaurant full-time or even more than full-time. They didn't need a seven-year-old around. So what was that about? Well, um, I did have a nightmare one of those nights that was so extreme that my grandmother continued to tell the story like into my 40s about the time that I woke up, the whole household screaming. Um, so I don't know what that was about. But they took off and I have no memory of my parents or my mother or anybody coming back to get me. But before memories end, one more thing happened at the restaurant. Um, my grandma, my aunt taught me how to make change. So at age, I was really advanced um, mentally. And at age seven, I, I could ring up um, customers' tickets and I could make change. I knew how to round up with the pennies to the nearest nickel, how to round to the next quarter, how to give enough quarters to the next dollar, and I made change. And everybody was, you know, would would say, "Wow, what a brilliant little girl you are!" So um, that was making me feel great, and um, and I was pretty obedient. I was very obedient. They told me to sit there. I sat there, so I didn't bother them too much. But before my mother left, there was a really interesting experience with my grandmother. I believe that my grandmother was one of the earliest mind control subjects from way back. Um, there's a book called The Control of Candy Jones. She predates the 40s, or at least early 40s. But my grandmother, every single lunchtime, and anybody who knows anything about restaurant management, lunches are super busy. The owner, the manager is available. But my grandmother, for some reason, she had this relationship with this businessman who had helped sponsor her getting the restaurant started. She would sit and we would all play gym rummy. She would put somebody else in charge of the restaurant and they would never bother her. And we would play gin rummy until this man showed up in the doorway. And then my grandmother would put down her hand. She would quit speaking mid-sentence. And she'd always be sitting on the outside. And she would stand up and walk directly to him and then walk away. And um, she did that every single day. And I remember this especially well because my mother commented on it. My mother seemed to strongly admire the fact that her mother had this man who had set her up in business. And this restaurant was attended by all the movers and shakers in Van Nuys. Uh, lots of service clubs were, you know, would come to this restaurant. Her restaurant was super popular. At lunchtime, there was a line, you know, waiting to get in all the time. So anyway, um, one day we'd seen that happen a couple days. And then one of those days, my mother decided that she wanted to know this man. And she wanted to introduce me to this man. But she wasn't supposed to. That man was coming to meet my grandmother, and they were going to walk. And my mom said she she was looking as if she just was so admiring the situation. And she said she never says what they talk about. I think that he was programming her. He was giving her a daily update in her programming um, because my grandmother had been widowed during the Great Depression. She was an itinerant farm worker. Her husband was an itinerant construction worker, and her husband, my grandfather, was gruesomely killed in a construction accident. And then here she is, Great Depression, two kids, and what does she do? So she ends up renting a little place in um, 
in California, which then these wealthy businessmen who had an empty building, they didn't know what to do with otherwise because everything was going closed. They rescued her and she kind of rescued them. She put a restaurant with uh, conference rooms, outdoor seating, an extra door just for the bakery, a, a big, huge operation. And my grandmother managed it. She, she did really well. And so my mother was so admiring of this relationship that she had with this wealthy businessman that my mom talked about it. She just admired the fact that there was this discipline and my grandmother would walk straight toward him and they would disappear for a walk down the road and then they would come back and she would never say what they talked about. Well, it was odd enough that I've remembered it my whole life and only now after having experienced mind control, do I put some meaning on this? Oh, that makes total sense if my grandmother had become a mind control subject. So um, she decides she wants to introduce me to this man. So she goes real quickly, get up, get up, you know, and so we both scoot out of the site, the booth. She grabs me and pulls me up. And just as they were turning around to go, my mother interrupts and, and just wants to meet him and introduce me. And he just looked at her and he looked at me like, I can't believe you are interrupting our thing. And he just turned and walked away. And my mom and I just stood there. I remembered it. Mom seemed a little perturbed, but then we went back and sat in the booth and that was all. But it was strange enough that it stuck in my head all my life. So I think my grandmother was a very, very early mind control subject. And anybody who's interested in learning about the earlier versions, the CIA Control of Candy Jones is a really interesting book to read. And it helped me understand my own grandmother. So anyway, that was a summer vacation. Soon afterwards, um, I had no memories, no memories, certainly, of my family coming back to pick me up. And then sometime later, I don't know when it was, but I'm presuming it was before the next summer, I remember being in the back of a sedan with four, I'm assuming, military men, men with very short haircuts in khaki all dressed exactly the same in khaki. And I'm in the middle of the back seat with two men on either side of me. And I'm looking at the two men in front of me. And I have a toy on my lap that had been given to me. And it was this little pressed tin thing painted. It was a little sitting up beagle with a crank on the side. And when you cranked it and let go, it played how much is that doggy in the window. And I just remember thinking how glad I had this dog because I was out of my body with a sense of betrayal. I had no words for this. I was only eight and I just didn't even know what to say or think about it. And then we pull up in front of my house, when the man slides out, opens the door and I climb out of the car. And this is the very first time that I have approached my house from the front. I'd always been in the family car. We drove in the driveway and we went in the kitchen door. And now here I am. And they're just acting like, go to your house. And I just remember so well the first experience of walking across the easement grass to the sidewalk and walking up the sidewalk like a guest 
and just feeling disoriented and this shoved down sense of rage and betrayal. And I don't know if I knocked or walked in the door, but I do remember showing my mother the little dog they gave me. What else did I have to talk about or to say? And um, she took it from me. And the next day she said, I never had a dog like that. So, you know, they're starting the gaslighting. None of my memories are real. I did not have this dog. Nope, nope, you never had anything like that. So I guess she wanted to separate off my memories of having been brought home by these military men. So that's all I remember from two years. So I remember my preschool teachers. I remember my kindergarten teachers. I have no memory of my first or second grade teachers. And then I remember my third grade teachers again. So I'm pretty sure I was gone from my home, not consistently, constantly, but for some good periods of time in first and second grade. Um, I did go back to my old grade school with every intention of seeing whether they had my school records. I went all the way back to Merced and I went to my grade school and I was parked in front of it, but it was really late on Friday and it could have been part of mind control, but I sat there just feeling like I shouldn't go in. I shouldn't go in. I shouldn't go in. And I just, and I kept thinking of all the reasons to not go in, even though I wanted to go in. And then it was after five and I'd missed my window because I couldn't be there till Monday. So anyway, that was odd. Then that summer, all of a sudden, we're going to leave our simple little bungalow, small house, and we're going to move to a nice big home. And I've heard this from other people, like Ann Diamond talked about it. She has a good book about mind control also. And um, they're giving my parents a beautiful custom home. And so I remember going... We The whole family drove over and back, and it turned out that the home didn't get finished until late September or maybe even October. And oddly, the school also wasn't finished. It um, never had, didn't have the cafeteria finished till partway through the semester. But we, I eventually did get into the school, and I have a lot of memories of it. And mostly I remember being unable to talk to the other kids. I just did not know how to socialize at all. My mom <laughs> had not interacted with me. Um, my siblings were very, very young. And then I went to this crazy mind control, two years of amnesia. And so <clears throat> I'm on the playground, standing near a wall, just watching the other kids while teachers are going, go out and play, go out and play. And I'm like, what does that mean? I'm watching these kids and I'm seeing like hand motions that mean nothing to me. And I'm seeing them interacting with each other. But it's like, I just, I don't know how to talk to other kids. I don't know what to do. And um, there is this crazy event where I'm under pressure from the teachers to go out and play with kids, but I don't know how to play with the kids. And so I'm watching these, I'm just watching. My, my method was to watch and copy. But everything is so subtle and it's so random and it doesn't repeat. I'm really good at playing games, really good at following instructions because they all have rules. But the playground, there's no rules. 
oh, and I could play jacks with kids and jump rope and tetherball. I could play any game, but just to be with other kids, no idea at all. So I'm just watching, waiting for something to be repeatable. And then I saw one thing that one girl did that was really clear, and she got a really good response. So I thought, okay, I'll go try that. So I went out and I stood about 10 feet feet away from the other kids. And what the girl had done was probably related to something silly they'd been talking about. And what she did was she pinwheeled her arms around like that and she ran into the crowd and made everybody burst away and laugh. And it was just hilarious. And I thought, well, okay, it'd be nice to have my first experience be something that goes well. So here these kids had not been interacting with me at all. And suddenly I come running in, pinwheeling my arms. And they all just separated and looked at me like, what's that? So it didn't seem to be successful. So I went back and I stood against the wall, just determined to keep watching until something made sense. So that is how totally unprepared I was for socializing. And I think my whole entire life, I've been trying to catch up. I mean, I remember watching from the sidelines in kindergarten and teachers telling me to go play. And I'm like, what's that? I don't know. And I remember doing the same thing when I was 38 years old and I was starting a business. I I went to the networking meetings and I stood on the edges and I watched people and I, you know, I'm older. So I, I knew how to dress and I barely knew how to introduce myself. And I didn't know much more than that. So anyway, that has put me on the autism spectrum. I never had that word applied to me ever until I was in my mid sixties. And then I suddenly realized, oh my goodness, this totally fits me. It's kind of nice to have a, have some explanation for how I've been so weird. Um, but anyway, that was I'm getting away from it, but that third grade was really significant. I just realized I didn't know how to how to play. When I had children and they said, Mom, come play with us, I said the words, I don't know how to play. I was, I did my best as a mom, but it wasn't natural for me at all. I had not had good mothering to teach me how to do anything to make it natural anyway. So um, anyway, third grade, we're in a brand new house and um, we didn't get in till around October. And my mother had her heart set on having a big, huge social whoop-de-doo because they are going from being an average family to being a family with connections now because I had been, I was a mind control subject. My main handler, I don't know whether we should call them owners or whatever, was a very powerful man in the Mormon church and in Congress. And so I don't know if I was destined to be a D.C. uh, mind control subject like Kathy O'Brien. But I did have a congressman who was my main controller, and his cousin was my pediatrician. And I named the names in the book. Part of me is, is afraid to say these names again, so... People can look it up if they want. It's it's online somewhere. Um, so my mom was looking. Oh, and 
not only was our house in this very nice neighborhood, but I believe that the corners of our lots had corners touching. So we could just go kitty corner out the backyard and we would go enter the backyard of this congressman who would the next year be Eisenhower's secretary of the interior. So, um, yeah, Eisenhower was in office. Uh, he, he was elected or nominated to the presidency the same day I was born. So this is just about the end of his term. Um, and he was in office then. So anyway, um, my mom is very thrilled to be making these connections to powerful people. And so she plans this Christmas party. And I had been talked to about bragging. I knew what that word and that concept were. And I'm noticing she's on the phone bragging. She's telling everybody how he's going to be at the party and, you know, getting it. So it's a big, big deal. And finally, the day of the Christmas party comes. And we children were supposed to stay in the children's den. And they were going to be in the living room and, and family room. And the little kids, the little girls were wanting out. They hear all this hubbub out there and this party and all these people talking. And my brother and I could not keep the door shut and keep the two little girls away. And so the door's opening and closing and opening and closing as we're fighting, trying to keep the little girls inside, which was our job. And finally, one of the adults on the other side opened it up and goes, oh, let's let him out for a little while. And so my mom said, okay, five minutes, only five minutes. So the, all the little kids go running out and I'm the older very obedient, you know, eight-year-old following after them, looking at all these adults up above me and my other siblings have scattered. So, you know, I'm, I wasn't ready to go out, but since everybody else did, I wandered out there. And next thing I know, I see my doctor, who's the cousin of the congressman. I see a man I've never seen before, and they are both talking to my father. So, I just say hi to my doctor, and he says, you know, cheerful hello to me, and my dad is beaming, everybody's beaming because the house is beautiful, and this party is successful, and the congressman is there, and then I said something that was, that ruined our entire lives. I said that... Well, my father, oh, it's so sad. I don't, I, part of me is afraid to tell this story too. I feel like I'm telling this terrible, terrible story on my family. But I told the doctor something that one of my parents was doing to me. So I'm going to protect her. I've just decided I'm too nervous to tell the details. But I said that one of my parents had done something to me. I didn't know it was wrong. I didn't know it was. It was illegal. I didn't know it was probably against their contract with the CIA. But I just blurted it out, and I blurted it out loud so that everybody in the party could hear it. And there's only one meaning to this, and it is a crime. And I don't remember anything else, but I know what I said and at the time, I didn't know it was bad, but now I know it was a crime, and it was probably 
a violation of their contract. And I don't remember anything else. And then next thing I know, my mom is unpacking the kitchen cabinets and we are moving to Scottsdale, Arizona. Or Paradise Valley, Arizona, which is a suburb of Scottsdale. Later on, I um, or just actually recently, a couple years ago, I was finishing up or I was just diddling around on Ancestry.com to see what my mother had put on there about our ancestors. I have become very interested in who my ancestors are. And um, so I was just wandering around, checking it out. And this thing jumped, a little menu jumped down and says, hey, you have new cues in, you know, check out the newspaper stuff, the old, old newspapers. So I had seen, there were there just were some articles that looked interesting that had my family in them. They all seemed too complex to absorb much and know what to do with right then. So I got my fingers over the the things to do a screenshot. So I had my fingers over the control and the three, and I'm ready to hit this other button. So I'm doing a scroll, look at the next photo on screenshot, scroll, look at the next screenshot, screenshot, screen. And then here's one that says police and something records, something. Well, of course it wouldn't be the police, but you know, other court records. So I go through and I just hit the screenshot and the thing disappears, but I'd screenshotted it. But I hadn't screenshotted the whole article. I had it gave you options, you know, and I was kind of going for the photos. And I got a picture of my mother that looks like it's taken in a police station with blinds behind her. And the look on her face is just freaked out. And I need to somehow go back and do a little bit more research. I haven't had the time for it. But I, they might have ended up in the police station the night of our Christmas party. I don't know. Maybe it was the next day. But she was in this robe. Um, she had a really beautiful quilted rose printed jacket that she wore in the evenings before bed. And she was wearing that in the police station with this stricken look on her face. I might have found one of my father, but... See, I have people who are watching me online all the time, and occasionally things will just suddenly change where it's like they did something. So I think that they hid me from that, and they weren't as fast on the gun as I was. I just happened to be ready to do those screenshots just by accident. And so um, I'm not exactly sure what happened, but I do know that we had to move. So my parents had been so happy. They had made it in this neighborhood with a congressman as our neighbor and and suddenly and suddenly it was all taken from us and we were instead moved to Paradise Valley Arizona suburb of Scottsdale Arizona and i think that there were a lot of mind control subjects there and i'm kind of assuming that if my parents had done something that interfered with my mind control then they probably took me out of one program they probably put me in another program that was going to require some other sorts of care um, management because what they had planned had been screwed up by my parents or one of my parents. So um, that Christmas party just changed our whole lives and we, we had to move. So we were gone um, the summer that I turned nine. Then we, we came back anyway. 
those that's the the two years that I left out can I ask you real quick about your parents what did they do for a living and then were they test subjects to NMK Ultra I think there's a very good chance they were my father was a veterinarian and my mom was a stay-at-home mother and um so my dad had access to drugs and the the mind control people often make sure that they have enough doctors among them to have access to drugs and stuff um and my father had been um his his mother had well they they he had been born on a farm in Missouri not really a farm. His, his father was a veterinarian who was just a large animal veterinarian, taking care of all the farmers and ranchers, horses and cows and all. And, um, and then when he moved, he leaves Missouri and he moves to Hollywood. And he became the veterinarian to all the pets of the movie stars and to Rin Tin Tin. I don't know if you're, yeah, you know Rin Tin Tin? He was, he was my, my, my grandfather was his vet was the vet who took care of Rin Tin Tin. And we have one of those studio photographs of Rin Tin Tin with a paw print on it. That's among our family stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were, and my grandfather was somehow able to accumulate so much money that he kind of he um became sort of a unofficial banker. He made loans to people to get homes and um and they had a very beautiful house my father described being two stories tall and you walk in the front and there's this two story atrium and you can see the hallway all the way around it that goes to all the different bedrooms and they used to have different stars um visit the home and there was who was the actor who played some famous cop, just the facts, ma'am, whoever that guy is. He was also a cartoonist uh, or an artist who did cute little cartoons. And my cousin's family owns a number of pieces that he had just drawn casually, but they're great, showing different members of the family. And they're around a pool table and one person saying something funny to another. And it's this whole set of four that are, are really nice by this, you know, famous man that most people know as an actor and i feel stupid right now that i can't remember his name but i get i gather from that that we had movie stars in the house so um when my father was only six or seven my grandmother thought that he could be as she told me i remember in my youth she told me that my dad she thought could be another little jackie coogan now, for those who don't know, Jackie Coogan was a cute little boy uh, during the Great Depression who sat next to Buster Keaton. Um, he had a little cap on. They didn't talk. It was like silent films. And he was just a cute little boy who followed Buster Keaton around um, in these silent movies. So she thought that my dad was cute enough to also be a child movie star. Well, that little boy, he always looked really sad. Well, guess who he grew up to be? He grew up to be Fester in the Adams family in a closet with a light bulb stuck in his mouth. That was little Jackie Coogan, an obese, sad man still being treated like shit in the, you know, in Hollywood. 
in a closet with a light bulb in his mouth. And they'd take out the light bulb and there'd be some funny little line. They'd stick the light bulb back in his mouth. That was Jackie Coogan when he grew up. So, but everyone thought he was so cute the way he was so sad. So my grandmother wanted my dad to be that. And he, um, and so we have in our family possessions, um, a catalog of child actors. And I'm afraid that that catalog was also for here's children to abuse. Their parents are willing to turn them over to you. And so there's a cute little picture of, of him in a tweed cap and gorgeous brown eyes and long eyelashes. And so he got selected to be in a play that I've never been able to find online. Dad said the name of the play was The Little Boy in the Apple Tree. Never found any record of it anywhere online. And I said, so what did you do in that? Now, Dad never wanted to talk about the military or about his time as a child actor. Never wanted to talk about it. But over the years, I've listened to different people ask him, and he always just kind of like went dull, dead, dropped his eyes, said as little as possible, tried to change the subject. But I do know that when he got back from six months away from home, during which he was presumably traveling with this group of actors. What he said, what he did was, he said he was up in the apple tree and he could move around a little bit, but he had no lines. He did nothing. He just sat in a tree. And um, I don't know if that's real or if he just totally invented that, but he came home a stutterer. And he stuttered for two years afterwards. He was terribly, terribly traumatized from this. And uh, so he could have, now this is way back. He was born in 25. So when he was seven years old, that would have been 1932. Um, I, I forget what I was going to say about it, but. The stutter, <clears throat> excuse me, the stuttering. I forget what I was what? Were you going to say about his yeah, stuff? Um, yeah, I don't know what more I was going to say about that. But let me just kind of, I know that there's more to go here. Okay, so, oh, yeah. So I don't know if he was being mind controlled. It, oh, yeah, I was going to say it's way before they started MK Ultra in the 40s. So this would have been some early, early time. But in case people don't know this, mind control has been practiced in Europe for hundreds of years. If anybody wants, I've got a, um, I summarized the story of Pally Hardwick on my website. He is the most famous person to have ever asserted being mind controlled. And this is in the 1600s. And it, it was, and it actually went to court and very credible people testified on his behalf. Um, he had actually been thrown into prison for doing a crime for his controller and people were testifying about against the controller, saying he controls him. We have watched him, you know, program him. And we've watched Pally change personalities and suddenly do things. And um, anyway, the, there was a trial and then it was appealed. Pally was in prison. Pally gets out. There was another appeal. It was a very long involved thing. But because it went to court, it's the best documented mind control with excellent witnesses that goes back hundreds of years. 
So the fact that this was in the 30s, not in the 40s, is really not significant. This has been practiced for a long time. And we've heard about um, zombies. I believe that was also a kind of mind control that was being done in another culture. So um, it's possible that my, I think it's probable that my dad was mind controlled um, through the Hollywood thing. And then he goes into the military and there's a good chance he was um, subjected to more mind control in the military. My mom wrote, you know, I said she was into genealogy. So she wrote up a little paragraph for each of them in her work. And one of the details about my dad was that in the Navy, he was in Carrier Aircraft Service Unit Number 33. And one day I just looked that up, CASU 33, and oh my goodness, there is a whole big discussion group about how the details about CASU 33, they, they'll have the group, the CASU, they'll have the ships that they worked on, they'll have the ports that they were in, and all of those for every other CASU is completely coherent with the history and records of the ports and the ships. There's, They all match, but not CASU 33. It seems to have been faked to look like it is legit, but nothing matches. You go to the ports, you go to the ships, and none of it matches. So I'm pretty sure that CASU 33 was probably a mind control program, and they love significant numbers like 33. So I think the chances of my dad being a mind control subject are excellent. Um, as for my mother, she was eight years old when her father died and her mom became a widow and was having a hard time continuing with her migrant farm work at the same time of having two young girls. So she moved to Phoenix for a little while and then to uh, different parts around L.A., being near family who could take her care, who could help her take care of her kids. And for a significant period of time, her two Mormon cousins took care of these two little girls. And then her mother was, and then she did really well with a little bit sidewalk kiosk type of business that she had. She was a baker. And instead of just, she rented an ice cream stand. And then she also sold Sandwiches made on fresh baked bread that were really popular. So she did really well and caught the eye of those uh, businessmen. But what was going on with her daughters while she's running this business? They're being cared for by two Mormons? I have a problem with that. So I don't have any more evidence about what might have happened to my mom during that time. But she was very vulnerable um, at a young age. And so it could have happened. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's interesting. You've been able to uncover so much about them too. You know, I know sometimes, yeah. you know, collecting evidence or just any type of genealogy, that's awesome in a way that your mom wrote some of that stuff down. So it could give you some clues on where to yeah. start. Right. And to, and late in her life, when she was, uh, before she totally succumbed to Alzheimer's, she was uh, dropping little hints to me. She just kept reminding me over and over again about that child actor catalog that my dad was in to the point where my dad is like getting angry and because mom mentioned it so many times. She wanted me to understand, I think. And, um, and it has been important 
to help me have compassion for my parents, to not totally blame them for all of this. Though, obviously, they made some decisions, but they were decisions made by wounded children. So um, that has been a big help to not hate them for this. And uh, and who knows how far back it goes? You know, not mind control has been done for hundreds of years in, in Europe. And so you get born into these families, and I just... I just think I can't blame them. You know, I just feel like it's what happens to certain people born into certain families. I just finished watching the crown last night. For some reason I got stopped and it's been years, but I went back and watched it. And I have, I really sympathized with King Charles being born into a really terrible situation that just gave that poor kid trauma after trauma after trauma. And um, and Princess Diana, too. She was another abused and traumatized child. And I just really related to all of it. And to me, it's just so significant to understand almost the entire European culture, which is a bunch of families run by these kings and queens. And uh, all of them seem to be operating under this system in which they feel that they need to uh, have no emotions and, you know, just follow these rules, follow these laws, hold everybody together, and don't tolerate deviation. Um, that's really sad, but that is what they've been trained into, and they're having a hard time breaking out. Um, sometimes I felt like it was important to talk about how my altars work, because the way I first understood mind control, kind of simplistically, is not the way I see it exactly now. So does that sound like a good place to go next? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Okay. Um, I have often felt that everything that I know is sort of like a big tree. You know, there's the stem and then the branches come off and then branchlets come off and then twigs come off. Um, and... I believe that they, when they torture children, torture babies, there is a split. And I know that I read this somewhere, but I can't say where. Um, when a trauma is so great that a child leaves their body, which happens with torture, and it happens with sexual torture, we leave our body, but the brain continues to perceive and it continues to record, but not with me there. And in a sense, it's like grafting another branch on a stalk of, you know, how you can graft a tree to actually have six different sorts of fruit on it. It's sort of like that. They, The brain is still recording, but it's recording on a brand new tape because it's not connected to the person who just left. So this thing can get established. And they can train it with some very simple commands. You know, your name is this. You come out when I say these words. Now go away and let the other part come back. But it started. It exists. And it has a name and it has a code. It's the beginning of programming. So I see what they're doing to us as having two different sorts of metaphors. One is like a tree. And the other is like... Um, it's like a computer program. 
And so it gets started. And every single time they come in, they can either tap into the existing one or they can create a whole new one. So uh, Fritz Springmeier's work talks about, he, he draws up a little chart and shows how it can have hundreds of programs or altars all and it looks very mechanical um and then i can accidentally create my own so they've been creating these programs that are behind me i have no consciousness for what they are but at some point in my childhood i might see something scary happening like maybe some abuse is going to come from my own family and i'm like I've witnessed that when I leave, I don't have to feel anything. So I just leave my body. Well, what if there's not a programmer around to program me? I've left. And so now a natural organic altar has started being recorded. And, um, and I might do that a few times. And these are unprogrammed altars. They're like my altars. And so I'm imagining something very mechanical back here and then something tree-like in the front. These are mine. And at some point, maybe from the very, very beginning, I know that my controllers are mean and they will hurt me in a totally brutal way. So whatever I do that's against their rules I better be careful and not let them know. I need to keep it a secret. So I think that I sort of, either consciously or just somehow unconsciously, organically, talked to all my altars and said, look, we're all going to act exactly the same so they don't know that we've split apart. So we can keep this a secret from them. So I've never had the sorts of altars that make the movies or the TV shows. Like I don't have a wild altar who does this and a serious altar who does that. I think all of my altars have, have agreed to just don't let them see the difference between us. And we better communicate pretty well. Even though we're split, we can still communicate and help each other and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, so it is totally possible that some of my programmed altars could be way radical, but they're controlled, they're managed very, very well, and they don't come out in normal life. They only come out under command. So unlike United States of Terra, where she just had all these crazy altars switching all the time in normal life, that would be an organic, natural, multiple personality. I'm a super well organized, government-trained, government-programmed altar, and everything happens on command at nighttime when everything's totally under control, and it doesn't interfere with my life at all, except a couple times. There's, see, And I don't know if these were intentional glitches, like they maybe wanted to test something, and was it a mistake that they allowed me to be conscious and aware of it and to witness these others? Because I have had altars come out who I don't think are mine. And 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 actually, I'm sure that some of them are not mine. I have an altar that knows martial arts. I have an altar who can assassinate. I think we talked about that in the other show. Those are trained ones. And to my knowledge, I mean, I never saw them before. I never witnessed them before, never experienced them before. but. 
glitch. One of them came out one time. Another of them came out one time. Um, I had one come out one time who I couldn't, and she took over my body and I could not stop her. I'm like screaming inside, what, what, stop, stop. And she had control of my body. She disabled me and she did what she wanted to do. In one case, it was to steal something that was kind of small and inconsequential, but still it was thievery. And the other time was walking in this really dramatic, sexy model walk, which I've tried to see if I could do looking in a mirror like, what was I doing? How did I do that? It's like, she's not in me. I don't know how to do that. But I was up here looking down while she did it. And I'm like freaking out, sad, scared, humiliated, and objecting. But I couldn't control the body until she decided to quit. So anyway, I have glitched a few times and had some of these altars come out and take over my body. But mostly I have um, felt myself switch in natural organic ways. And it's even possible that some of these altars might have come in as helpers. Like suppose I leave my body and I'm in a super vulnerable place, no programmers around, but some angelic helper maybe. I don't know how we relate to beings on other realms. You know, we've talked about angels and we've talked about people talk about spiritual helpers. So I'm just saying some sort of spiritual help, spiritual helper came in and then she was there to help that at um whenever I happened to need her. One time I was in in the classroom at the very end of my um, master of fine arts degree. And I was critiquing somebody else's, did I talk about this last time? I was critiquing somebody else's paper and suddenly she seemed to think that what I was saying was stupid and she came in and suddenly my, my proprioception, my sense of myself in this room all changed. It was as if the room was a little bit wider, a little less long, the table felt slightly differently oriented. And then I hear her add a qualification to my sentence and then finish it totally in a different direction from what I was going. And I'm like, oh, that was much better. Um, but who was that? She was somebody who didn't want me to embarrass myself in this class. And she stepped in and kicked me out and she finished. I also had a, I've had a couple experiences where I participated in a literal miraculous healing. And I felt somebody else come into me to do that healing three times. And so I know that, I know that there's, I, actually, I don't know how to, how to say what I know about this. I just know that I have other parts and that they can come and go. Oh, I think I can have two parts out at a time, but I can have a number of parts who can all listen. So two seem to be able to control my eyes and my mouth and my thinking about a subject and my decisions about how to proceed in something. But a programmed part from the government can disable me. And even one of my parts seems to be able to take over the body. But they all seem... Not the program parts. I hate what the program parts do. But the other parts that I have somehow gathered, I think, through angelic or spirit help, 
Um, those, I don't know how I control them. I have a sense that I have someone inside who controls. And I think two can come out at a time. And I think I have a whole lot of them that can also watch, listen, think, even collaborate together. And so that's what allows me to score at genius levels in in lots of in two categories mostly um, games and numbers, but also like I scored a ninety eight in engineering on an Air Force exam, just because I could make some educated guesses about what these words, what these symbols mean. I don't know what engineering symbols are, but I had part of me that could guess what they mean, and I scored really high in engineering. So all kinds of mysterious abilities, and if I'm given a very complicated task, such as producing a national, international conference on something that requires logistics and art and all kinds of creative inspiration and inter interacting with lots of people and clear communications and planning and everything, leave me in an empty room and I can do work that people blow their mind over how good it was how brilliant it was they never thought that could be done in such a short period of time stuff like that but get me in a room with too many people around me and i just kind of have to like go down to um really simple behavior just because too much distraction that's part of being autistic um too much distraction and we are disabled, which leads to another theory that I've developed about um, about how they split us. Do you remember? I know in the 50s, 60s, maybe even into the 70s or later, scientists were frequently on television saying how the human being only uses 10% of their brain. Well, I never heard any explanation of that of that science that led them to this conclusion. And I never heard any, any description of where they're going with that. Only this one sentence repeated for decades. I think that was their cover for whenever mind control had the cover blown off of it, that we would say, oh, they were just trying to help us maximize human potential. That's all they were doing. It was all for the good. So they... They were right about one thing. I think that the the capacity to hold information is nearly infinite. And maybe we you could make an argument that it's we're only using 10%. So yeah, they want to use the other percent, but they didn't realize that our processing centers could not be divided up, but they did. They divided our processing capacity. So each part of us only has a fraction of the processing capacity, which is what makes us slow, which is another component of autism. You know, people are, are, are slow when they're getting lots of input. That's why I say, put me in an empty room and I can do miracles. Put me in a crowded space with lots of stuff going on and I, I'm a mess. I, I can talk to one person at a time just fine. I can talk to two, okay, but three or more or a big crowd and I become smaller and smaller and smaller because I can't process all the information coming in. So I think they, they didn't realize this. And sometimes I can actually quit hating them enough that I can just, I've 
laid in bed or maybe sat in my meditation chair and said, okay, so I know this is a science experiment. I know I'm one of your subjects. I hope that you're understanding really clearly that you cannot divide up our processing capacity and have us function anything like a normal human being or a happy human being. You have you simplify us a great deal that you you were right about storage capacity being huge, but the processing capacity is not huge. And um and that's what is making things really difficult for just surviving as a multiple. And uh, recently I heard somebody say that he didn't like to use the word multiple. It might have been John Euler, one of your former guests I listened to, um, or maybe it was somebody else. But anyway, he liked dissociation. And I hate that phrase dissociation. It just talks about the one tiny little mechanism that is used for switching between all these fascinating programs and personalities that we have. These alters, we need to talk about our alters. We need to talk about the different personalities because each one of them contains programming and it might be government programming or it might be my own programming. The programming maybe that I opened myself up to which angels or other spiritual helpers have come in to plug that hole and as long as they're there, then provide some sort of benefit to me. Does that make sense? Yeah, I am happy you talked about that because I I really wanted to ask you about autism and MK Ultra because I've had people ask that in the comments and I didn't have an answer for it. And it's mm-hmm. something that I've heard, but I'm not well versed on. So I'm really happy that you're talking about that because I think that that is sort of a missing link that's just not talked about at all. Sure, there's probably other things that cause autism too, of course. But adding this into it and trying to relate mm-hmm. it, I think, is a really important part of this. I think it's important, too, because I, I'm not sure if we have a record of autistic people throughout time, but we sure do now in the decades since mind control started. And another fascinating thing is since I read Zachariah Sitchin's History of the Sumerians, the Sumerian histories that were stamped on thousands of clay plates, they tell the story of the Anunnaki who came to Earth and created humanity. And this story is done in a much tighter version in the book of Genesis. But before Genesis was written, there's a story with lots more detail about how they tried creating humans to work in the gold mines. And even in the book of Genesis, they tell the story of creation twice. And the second time they mention gold and working in the mines before they mention women even being created because they were just cloning humans trying to get the perfect worker. And in the Sumerian tales, one of the things that was bugging them that made them want to cause the flood and get rid of humanity was that the humans didn't have enough focus. They kept getting distracted by socializing. They were goofing around with each other too much, specifically having too much sex, but they weren't focusing on their task. Now, suddenly we have a generation of humans that are all really good at focusing and we are really lousy at socializing. It's as if the creator finally 
got what they said they've been trying to create for 12,000 years. And back in the 40s, the Nazis were trying to create the Ubermensch, the superhuman, and they were doing it in two different ways. They were trying to isolate their favorite DNA, their favorite genetics, their favorite family lineages. And I don't like thinking of myself as one of their favorites, but I'm German. And um, and they were also doing these horrible experiments on people. They were, you know, that they were doing sexual mutilation experiments and seeing whether a person's gender identity matched their sex way back in the 40s. That was right after the Nazis were let, let in to presumably work on the bomb and other sorts of things, but they were also part of CIA and they were doing gender experiments. And now suddenly we have a generation of people with all this gender dysphoria. Who knows what, you know, what else they've been doing, but they were trying, but that's a little side thing back to the trying to get us super focused and not waste our energy, which they are trying to maximize by, by socializing too much. And suddenly we've got this generation of people who seem to match not only the Nazi goal, but the Sumerian um, intentions, which I know does not sit well with Christian theology. And I apologize for that, but I'm just tying together the things that seem to answer some of our unanswered questions and that have amazing coherence. And I don't really like the answers I'm getting, but they're coherent with a lot of otherwise unanswered questions. So I think that they need to stay on the, you know, on the table of possibilities. Absolutely. Yes. Do you think that there's a high correlation between MKUltra survivors and or victims in autism in general? I don't know enough MKUltra survivors to make that decision. I just know it feels really true to me. It feels like it's all one and the same. And and it may or may not have to do with, it probably had to do with the, the mind control, which terrorized us children. Um but also just the way that my mom brought me up with no no socializing with her. I didn't have the mom-baby experience that I have any memory of. I had a, a, I had a therapist back in 93 say, so tell me about your, your childhood. And I was like, oh, it was normal. And he said, well, just describe some of the, your memories of being with your parents. And I'm trying to pull up some memory and I have Christmas photos with all of us kids smiling and birthday photos with everybody smiling. But day in, day out, I was told to go to bed. I was never put to bed. I never had the experience of a parent sitting there with me, talking, caring, listening to me say anything. I was told to go to bed and I went to bed and, uh, I, I just, I, I remember talking to the side of my mom's head and talking to the back of her head, but I don't have her ever looking at me in any of my memories. So that would totally help create a an, an autistic child, I think. And then go to your bedroom and work on those crafts. 
So that's why I'm such a nerd. <laughs> and and ha just have had a hard time socializing. You know, even like the best social experience I had in my 30s, I basically was a worker. You know, I, I worked with a bunch of activists um, working for social justice and for the environment. And but I didn't hang out and just enjoy their company. I always had I always took on jobs and I worked the jobs, did them really well, got everybody's praise for doing that. But was I somebody they invited to go on a river raft trip with? No. Did I, you know, I just I just didn't have much of a social experience with them. I was a work worker and knew how to work. I did not know how to socialize. So anyway. What a precious child. It seems like you were. I'm so sorry for everything that you went through. You just sound so darling, these stories and just trying to do your best all the time and trying to, you know, make friends as best as you can. And you weren't given all the resources to do it. You know, when I was in third grade, I had a teacher that I totally loved. Uh, her name was Mrs. Costigan. And when I was 24 years old, pregnant with my son, I got a phone call from her. She was retired and living, I think, in Portland, Oregon, or maybe up in Washington. And um, she just had worried about me. And out of all the children that she had cared for in her entire teaching career, she had heard that my family had moved to Scottsdale. She called my mother found out I had changed my name, got my phone number, and then she called me and just said she just wanted to know that I was okay. And at that time, at 24, I hadn't, why would she care? Like, I'm just, I'm fine. Yeah, everything's fine. But I've thought about it over years, and I've just loved the fact that she, because I do remember, I think I was a kind of a sad child. Like I said, I didn't know how to socialize. I knew how to do my work. But um, anyway, so she had seen me and she had worried about me and she let me know that that many years later it was sweet well, it's always you know beautiful to me whenever i hear survivors talk about what they went through and it's it's not every time this happens but there seems to be little glimpses of light here and there where a person stepped in and cared about the child or they they saw love from somebody once you know and and it was always something that stuck with them throughout their life and really helped them in the hard times that were ahead, just understanding mm -hmm. that feeling. Yeah. And my, my angels have just dropped in often enough to do miracles for me. And uh, those sustain me a great deal. And so they don't, they don't step in all the time. They don't rescue me all the time. I still have lots of troubles and trials to go through but just the fact that over the years I have experienced them I know that I'm cared for and um and it'll be okay maybe not in this lifetime but in the scheme of of our infinite lives it's all okay oh that's beautiful that's so beautiful jean now i wanted to ask you too were you passed through that Hollywood model at all, like how your father was, or did that sort of end after he went through it and it didn't pass through any more generations? I think that they did want me to do 
to be in Hollywood. And unfortunately, I think they wanted to use me as a sex object. And I talked a little bit about this last time, about how how I, I kept being pushed in certain directions. And um, I found myself being cast in plays as a prostitute, as a sex symbol, as a um, stripper, and finally as Matahari, a sex spy. Um, that that just that one tipped me over the edge and i knew that i hated these people and i wanted to get out of the situation that i'd been pushed into i had not wanted anything to do with sororities and fraternities i wanted to go chase down the hippie movement to be honest and i was thinking that i wanted to study all the religions of the world and philosophy and that's what i wanted to do and instead, I have these sorority girls that are are trying to get me in that direction. And then the sorority. And so I was told by one of my best friends, well, you just don't know what friendship is because you've never had it. You have to give this a try. It's the most important decision of your entire life. You have to do this. You cannot walk away from this most important thing. And so I'm... Everybody around me, family and friends, were all telling me this, and I was all alone with my secret desire to understand life and chase down the hippie scene. And so I gave up what I wanted to give them a try. But they just took over my life, you know, for one whole school year, and they continued to push me in the in this direction toward the sex object thing. And at one point, oh, yeah, it really seemed like I was being pushed toward being a, some Hollywood thing. And I didn't want it. And to my credit, I mean, I was pretty wimpy and standing up to people. But I got pushed over the edge, and I literally ran away. And uh, I ended up hitchhiking across the country with the first man who I could find who thought that was a good idea. And that ended up being the father of my children. He was a Christian, but he uh, he was of a really controlling breed of Christians. He wanted me to do everything that he said and not have a mind of my own. And uh, that didn't work out long. And so, you know, he ended up getting abusive. And I ended up, like, getting really deadened until the day I decided to leave him. And even then, it just and then it was a long time that I it took me to kind of come come back to myself. I've never been back to myself. I've, you know, it's been just really difficult. But I um, and I became a angry atheist for a long time, and then I started having experiences of Jesus as a being whom I feel like I've known since before this life. You know, somewhere in the Old Testament, it says, I knew you before you were born. I felt like I had this totally surprising memory of back when I knew Jesus before this lifetime. And so, and then I've had experiences of Jesus more than that. Not a whole lot of times, but enough times that I slowly brought back my spirituality, very Christ-centered, centered around his teachings, not not coherent with a lot of church doctrine. I'm sorry, but that's my truth. 
but definitely centered on Christ's teachings. And um, I got my I got my spirituality back after years of being really, really angry because the church the church and my ex conspired to take my children away from me. I ha- I lost my children for two years. Mm. Yeah. And I had to fight really hard to get them back with no help. My parents had plenty of money, no help. So uh yeah, I don't I forget what question led to this. I don't know if I concluded the answer. Yeah, we were talking about the <laughs> the Hollywood stuff and then we got into your life and yeah. running away from that, which was really good, but also sad because it sounds like you were set up with another handler, maybe your ex-husband yes. was then trying to control you mm-hmm. after you left. Right. And then when I left, then they had to find somebody else to handle me. So they guided me toward my second husband. Um, oh, that was so interesting. I mean, I was kind of an angry atheist right then. And uh, and I read this famous book called Creative Visualization by Shakti Gawain. Gawain. And it was all about how, yeah, just visualize what you want and you'll get it. Nah. Um, so I did. This suddenly I made a I was ready to be in a relationship. And so I made a list of everything I would like in a partner. And he came into my life. Only he was also a mind control subject. He was everything I asked for and a mind control handler. And so um he and I ended up getting married and uh a lot of huge negatives that came with that because he was my handler really clearly to me now um and i again i can't remember where we where we were aiming we were the last question did i finish it yeah we were talking about how um going into the hollywood model you met this husband who was a handler had kids left him and then all of a sudden this other handler comes in and sort of continues on the the control with you. So they had to um they had to change their plans for me and I think they didn't know exactly what they were going to use me for but um they probably enhanced my programming in other ways um by the time that was over. But speaking of like the Hollywood and the sex goes together a little bit but they're not entirely the same. Um, one time my husband and I woke up in our apartment and we both just were completely shocked because our bed frame had broken and the, and the, um, box springs and mattress had fallen down onto the ground and we didn't remember what had happened. And then at the same time, I had injuries in my intimate parts that I now recognize I think that I had been gang raped that night because my skin was all pulled apart. It just was fissured. It was swollen and fissured like somebody had been gang raped, like I had been gang raped. And I I didn't know what it meant. We were too poor. I didn't go to a doctor if I thought that just, you know, waiting and and just using some creams or something would heal me. And I did heal. And I, I never saw a doctor. So I think I was being used sexually um, throughout my life at just random times whenever it was what they wanted. I think that we all have a a manager who manages a number of things. They need to keep our programming updated. 
They need to delete unused programming, programming they won't use anymore, and then keep the rest of it updated. And they also need to manage our healthcare so we can have people enter our homes and it might be that they're going to put us in an amnesic state and then they're going to take us out on some mission, bring us back a few hours later, and we'll wake up in the morning going, gosh, I'm tired. Why am I so tired? Or it might be a simple medical exam that night and it won't you know, take too much out of us. And so, And then they also know what our schedule is. So people who work on the computer and manage their lives on their calendar they know our schedule really easily. But for me, they'd have to be somehow reading my calendar on paper. But at some point, they put an implant in my right eye. And I think the per, and it's a, it's close vision. So I just woke up this one morning and went to touch my eye. And it was like, what? Touch under my eye. And I feel like I'm touching up above my eye. And that can happen. Nerves can get, um, well, I had a friend who had a water ski accident. And the top of his head and his eyebrow got mixed up. And it took a while for his brain to reroute the feelings. Well, it took me about three days before under my eye and above my eye were normal. But for three days after this thing happened, my vision is terrible and I can't touch it. And it feels weird. And I think they put an implant in. And sure enough, Somebody recently who was a targeted individual says, oh, yeah, that's one of the things that has been recorded that they do. Um, and then I realized that my eyesight, which used to be about, is it 40-20 or 20-40? It wasn't too bad. I didn't, I was like always on the verge of needing glasses. Well, suddenly my eyesight is absolutely terrible in my right eye, but it's really good for the distance I use for looking at my calendar. So if they've hooked up the vision centers to an implant that transmits to them, then they can read everything that I write in my journal, everything that I write in my, um, in my date book. So they know what's on my schedule and they know that I'm, they, they don't want to mess up my schedule too much because they, they kind of want to stay invisible in a sense and so when they know I need to do grocery shopping, they're not going to mess with me that day. They know that I have any important, you know, doctor appointment or whatever. They're not going to mess with me. But on my free days, those are the days that they might decide to do something. And um, and it could just be as simple as taking care of my health. They, they gave me thyroid surgery one night. And um, yeah. And so they are doing, they're taking care of my health, apparently, and they're also using me. And those ones take a whole lot more out of me. And they often seem to schedule them at times when it doesn't interfere with it too much. Sometimes it does, but um, most of the time it doesn't. It's it's like there, there's, we each have a manager who takes care of us really <laughs> in a way that doesn't interfere too much, but lets them get their most out of us. So you had a surgery done on you in the middle of the night on your thyroid? And it was when I did not own a cell phone. I don't think if it, if a photo exists, it'll be on an old computer hard drive in a drawer somewhere. But yeah, I woke up 
And and all I could think of was Star Wars. It you know <laughs> when Luke Skywalker had his arm healed up in a you know in a few hours, right? It was just like that. I had the most beautiful, perfect white scar with a totally even seam, and it just looked like it was um, cut and perfectly healed by the time I woke up in the morning, and I. I kept trying to think of any other way that I could have this absolutely perfect white line on me. Was I outside gathering firewood and I might've stooped underneath a mesquite branch and got cut, but no, nothing like that happened the day before. I was not outside. That's not what happened. And so I, I thought about it and, and five years later, I'm giving my health history to a nurse practitioner. And when I think I'm all done, she goes, and when did you have your thyroid surgery? <laughs> so she could see it five years later. And even though it's it's in my neck wrinkles, she saw it and she recognized it as thyroid surgery. And I was like, do I, I was in a mood to tell somebody, but I was, I knew that they're going to think you're crazy. And the mind controllers don't want you to talk about it. So if you talk about it, they might pay you back. But I went ahead and I told her. I just had a feeling that I trusted her. And guess what? She was trustworthy. She looked at me and she nodded her head slowly and said, I believe you. And I said, next time I see you, I'll bring you a few more photos. Because I had more photos of crazy things that had happened. Like I wake up in the morning and I've got biopsy scoop marks on my finger. Or I have a taser burn on my arm. Now I've got a cell phone and I'm starting to photograph all these things. And so I brought her photos of taser burns and scoop marks and a whole bunch of stuff that was completely unexplainable. And she thanked me for it. And she said, I'm going to put these not in the front of your file, but in this kind of like secret place in the back that's not shared with everybody, but we have it on record now. And then a couple years later, we were talking about this sort of thing again. And she and I said, well, I'm really glad. I appreciate that you believed me. And I appreciate knowing that that stuff is in my file. And she shuts the door because we were like heading out of the room and she says it doesn't exist there anymore she goes i didn't take it out somebody else took it out so yeah oh my gosh so they took uh, your records well they just took out those photos and i still have them but she she knew she was taking a risk and ever since i said to a, a doctor the first doctor that I was just in a mood and I said, I'm a mind control subject and it just blah, 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 blah. And he never said a word to me, but he wrote delusional in my file. And so I think that was around 2012, 13. And every single doctor since then has written delusional. And one time I found out where I could get into my file with one of my health insurance companies and they wanted me to get into my portal and you know get active on it's like i don't i don't need to be on the computer but one day i just decided so so i look at it and there's almost nothing there and while i'm sitting there looking at it right then suddenly another line pops up now i haven't seen a doctor in a long time and another line pops up and this doctor i've never heard of writes delusional just one word delusional and it popped on there right when i'm looking at it so it sounds to me like the mind controllers that are always watching my activities on my phone and when I'm on the computer, 
I think they just decided to fuck with me and just make me feel paranoid by doing this right in front of me. And they did. Oh my goodness. So that's, some, that's definitely, yeah, I've gotten kind of emotional about everything. Yeah, I bet. Definitely what? I was going to say, that's the thing that a lot of people in society that are learning about this don't understand is that, you know, the, the abuse never ends really. Like you might leave your family and the networks behind, but they're still always trying to get access to you somehow, whether it is through programming or, you know, gang stalking. I know that you deal with a lot of electronic harassment, which I'd love for you to talk more about. Cause I know a lot of other people, t- you know, are going through that right now too, you know, but it's like, you're never free. Mm-hmm. Like let you be fully free. Right. Right. So the different sorts of um, harassment that I've gotten, and I believe it's all purely to pay me back for talking. Um, it is, there's been all kinds of types, like they will send people into the community who are maybe popular and well-liked, and that person will drop weird information about me. I have no idea what they say because it's too weird for friends to come up and say, hey, so-and-so is saying something. So just suddenly friendships will, in one area, will all just go south. And I don't think I did anything because I think that when I change alters, it's usually at night under control. It's not in my daytime. I don't notice missing time in my day. So I think it's other people socially. There could be other explanations. It could be me in an amnesic state doing something I have no memory of, but no one has, I have invited people to tell me and no one's ever told me that I've done something that they witnessed. So, so I think it's other people just talking quietly about me. Um, the history of the electronics is really fascinating. Um, it started in late 2010, November 30th in 2010. I was sitting on my sofa reading, and suddenly I feel this spot buzzing on my foot and moving up my leg. I'm sitting on the sofa with my feet up kind of sideways on the sofa, and I'm feeling this. It was not painful which is a vibration coming up my leg. So I pulled my leg close to me and it finds my next foot, which was out there. And it finds that foot and starts coming up that leg. So I jump off the sofa. And even though this is the first time beams have hit me, I just figure it's them doing something. I'd never even heard the term direct energy weapons, but I just knew that this is the sort of thing that they do. They've got, they have technology many decades ahead of what they say. Like if we ever hear about some cool science technology, probably the CIA had it four decades ago. So I sit down on the other end of the sofa and it starts happening again. And so I jump up and I I think, should I go to a hotel? No they might be able to follow me and then I've just wasted money that I don't have or they'll just get me tomorrow night. So I decided I was pretty tired and maybe I'll just go to bed so that when they hit me, at least I'll be lying down next. You know, I don't know what they're going to do to me. I don't know what my choices are. It's near bedtime. I'm just going to go to bed. So I lay down and suddenly this, instead of these beams had been, 
maybe three inches in diameter. And they felt very round, even though they were kind of moving on my body. I, I felt that they were round. And suddenly it was like they hit me, like they know where my bed is. They know where my head is likely to be. And suddenly there was a vibration that hit my head that felt like it completely encompassed my head and part of my neck. And then I was out unconscious. When I woke up in the morning, my ears were ringing and they never quit. So that was, I woke up December 1st, 2010 with my ears ringing after that vibration. And then I started having crazy it was as if they started with the lowest technology and then they built more and more and more complex on technology on top of it. I started hearing tones. Then I started hearing tones and progression. Then I started hearing chords. Then I had an audio visual presentation made to me. And this one was trippy. Oh, and we've skipped all the, the alien stuff when I was living out near the military base. Um, aliens and UFOs for years of living near a military base. But now I'm in a small town, no aliens or UFOs. Everything seems to be medical or beings. Um, so this audiovisual presentation, I suddenly I had tones so loud that it put me into a panic. And I ran to get my phone where I had just created a little file of music to calm down to. <laughs> And, or it wasn't music. It was, um, yeah, yeah, it was some some sort of ethereal music to to just relax to. And my favorite piece is gone. And the only piece left, I put it in this category, knowing that I was suspicious of it. I had never listened to it before. Some guy had created it custom for me. And as soon as as I was paying him for it and getting a a vibe about it. It was like, don't trust this guy. Do not listen to that music. But because I paid for it, I didn't want to throw it away. And so here it is. And my other stuff had all disappeared. That was the only thing. And the sound was so loud. It was absolutely panic inducing. I felt like I had to do something. So I hit that one. And I laid down trying to, trying to be calm despite this incredible noise. And I started having an audiovisual presentation. It was like they had created a little cartoon alien in simple orange color. And this alien was, he had his hand on a bar that seemed like it was between my ears. And he pushed down, there were three tabs on the bar and he pushed them all three forward. And when that happened, oh my goodness, I'm, kind of forgetting what exactly happened, but I eventually went unconscious. And, um, but it told me something. I have to come to the next, next part three or something. I can't remember what he told me. And then I woke up, heard and smelled my boyfriend in the kitchen making popcorn. And I wondered how long I had been out. And then he told me that it had been like an hour and a half. And I was just shocked at the amount of time that had gone by. And uh, anyway, that was weird. And then the next level was an actual movie. It looked like black and white, um, eight millimeter, you know, like 60s era. A family walk, walking, presumably from the marina up onto a boat and waving at the camera. Just like family family movies, you know, where there's just like 
10, 20 seconds or something back then. And uh, and one time it was somebody seemed to be carrying the camera of it about chest height, walking with, with somebody else. Occasionally an arm would be in it. And they were walking down a dirt road in a third world country. And these movies are just coming into my head. And it's like, I know this is not me. This is not mine. These are coming from elsewhere. And uh, one time a movie was played upside down in my head. Another time a movie was played at double speed. It was something like clowns moving around and they were all going double speed. And then another time two movies were played on top of each other in my head. So I'm documenting all of this, which um, is for me, but I know that it's really convenient and useful to my controllers to compare what I write with what they think they're doing and seeing whether they're successful with whatever experiment they're doing. So I feel like they are using me as a guinea pig for testing their technology and they are um and sometimes they could just be training new technicians on how to use this and then I get to be their subject but it has just moved up in levels of complexity and it doesn't ever seem to go backwards so that kind of undoes my theory that maybe they're just training people um so anyway we got up to the movies and then those pretty much quit when i left that little town that i was living in and um Anyway, so those are some of the direct energy weapons. Now, more recently, they've been um, hitting me with vibrations. I mean, this even happened in that small town. They must have hired some guy who drove a car where he had a boombox on it and really deep, low, you know, boom, boom, boom. And he'd park in front of my house. But it wasn't just the music and the deep boom, boom. There was a vibration hidden inside that that seemed to be aimed right at me and it would hurt my heart and I'd have to like run hide behind the fridge to not be damaged. I felt like I was being damaged by this vibration and he would come a lot, like at least once a week. And, um, and I, I had that happen when I went to, um, I went to a UFO conference in Las Vegas and I'm in my little RV and suddenly I'm feeling this, this, oh, this vibration is just hitting me. And I'm hiding behind the fridge for a little while. And I just got tired of standing there long enough that I decided to lay down on the floor with my chest behind the battery bank because I think those were actually more blocking than the fridge was. And um, and I've just had things like this happen so often. It's just exhausting. And like I told you before we started, last night I had, and this has happened more than once, two helicopters come at my house and they seem to be crisscrossing on the south side and I'm sitting um you know inside and there's these two two big there's the biggest windows but it's also my nicest view looking out and sometimes I'm still there after dark even though I can't see and suddenly I'm these helicopters are flying around and I'm being hit with vibrations from two directions and I don't know the technological point of that, but I went and I grabbed this metallic cloth that I have and I just held it up over me and tried to protect myself in th these directions and um, until the helicopters left. <sighs> and I have been lying in bed sometimes getting ready for sleep and suddenly I get hit by, um, oh, and I live out on the very edge of the city and there's nobody who lives south of me. But all of a sudden, there's all this activity. There's cars during the day that are out there. And I'm thinking, oh, they're setting up some sort of 
tech site? Where can we get the best angle on gene? And there's all this new activity that never existed before is out there. And now I'm feeling, I'm feeling myself being hit by vibrations from that direction now. While I'm in bed and I'm starting to fall asleep and I don't have the motivation to get out of bed when I'm almost asleep, and that's when they hit me. And then I rationalize, well, do I want to jump out of bed and go hide? They'll just come back again. I might as well lie here. And and then I'm not even sure I could move if I talked myself into it. Sometimes I think they can immobilize me like that. Oh, my gosh. Do you yeah. have So anyway, they do, they do tech. Yeah, they do tech against us, social sabotage against us. I have had my websites completely sabotaged. So much that I don't have any more motivation to go fix them. They have um, sabotaged my finances. Uh, you know, I have to stay up with my bookkeeping. Otherwise, I'm going to find out that I've been charged something that, you know, I didn't buy. And every every single way that they can sabotage us, they do. Oh, and I've had, I have had toxic gases in my home. I had, I bought a, a flammable gas meter. I bought two of them, actually, because I wasn't trusting the one was working properly. Um, and it was shortly after I'd posted on Facebook that I had accidentally knocked one of my gas valves on my stove and the house had filled up with propane very slowly and I hadn't noticed it. And suddenly I was staggering around the house till I realized what had happened. I closed that stove burner, opened up the doors and windows, aired out the house and everything was fine. Well, right after that, now they've got a cover. If it, if I would die of a gas or get brain damaged by a gas or something, everyone will think it was Jean and her propane stove. But it wasn't propane. I have a gas meter, and I would put it on the ground. I'd put it up in the ceiling. And at least three, if not four times, they I found myself staggering around for no reason. And it wasn't the, the propane meter. I opened the doors and went... Oh yeah, there's fresh air out here and there's not inside. And so it's winter time and I'm opening up the, you know, the doors and, and clearing out the house. And each time the gas seemed to be a different gas. Sometimes it was low on the ground, slowly filling up. Sometimes the next time I try it, the gas meter re reacts to the ceiling. One time it reacted over all of the drain vents, the sinks and the tub is where I would get a high meter reading. I've got another friend who's a TI and she keeps up with the science of this more effectively than I do. And she says, oh yeah, they can definitely put it in this way, this way, and this way. And um, and she even said, they've got a little tool where they can put it in your window. And she, the last reading I got, I'm all over the house trying to figure out where is this coming in. And I go into my bedroom and the window next to my bed, that's where I'm getting the reading. So they must have been shooting it in the edge of one of my windows right next to my bed. I wasn't getting a reading near the stove, not near the sink or tub, not near the ceiling, not near the floor. It was coming in my window. And one time my cat saved my life. I was um, in bed and he recognized the gases and he has never done this ever before. He climbs on top of me and he starts pounding my chest, my little cat. And I'm like, and then I thought, there must be something wrong. And I got up and realized I was having a hard time walking, opened the doors, everything's all better. 
Yeah. So I feel like they tried to kill me uh, a few times last winter with um, odorless gases that would kill me. And I feel like I have excellent evidence. I at least as good evidence as I can to use a meter and to note exactly where I was in my journal. I've got everything recorded in my journals. And every single anomalous weird thing with no explanation, no logical explanation, I have taken from my journals and I put them in a database. And I am at least a year behind in keeping up with everything. But the last time I was on there, I had 1,100 items. Yeah. Wow. Oh, well, it includes six years of weird alien and UFO stuff. And I don't know, literally, if aliens and UFOs are really aliens or if it's um, our military technology that is looking like, or, or actually, I think that there's both. You know, but for those who don't want to believe in aliens, our government does have the technology, but I think that there are aliens. And so that was, you know, six weird years of weirdness there. But I left that location and then I had 10 years of, of medical stuff in the next community that I lived in. And then when I fled that, so I fled twice and both times, you know, had to start life all over again. I started life in an RV. I figured as long as I'm targeted, I'd rather be a moving target than a sitting target. So I just never told anyone where I was going next. I always reported on where I had been, but I didn't say where I'm going next and tried to keep up my relations with my friends and family. It didn't do very well, but you know, it was, it was okay. And I, uh, and now instead of being military and alien, Instead of being medical, it was just, I think they had to say, well, where did she land? Okay, she landed here. Well, we've got this community. And their network of people to do shit to you is huge. It's not just the CIA. They also use cops, doctors, service clubs, the, the Freemasons, wherever they are. And then all the petty criminals that they have convinced to do work for them in exchange for staying out of prison. So they've got everyone from the highest judges to the lowest petty criminals and everything in between um, that they can tap and say, okay, she's in this campground and, um, and ideas, what should we do? And that, and so they come up with all different crazy things, just really, really crazy. Want to hear a funny one? I'm in this campground outside Pagosa Springs, Colorado. And I've gone to the campground at the farthest end and I get there on a weekend and there's a few people around, but not too many. And I'm feeling really comfortable where Sunday night, everybody leaves. I'm the only one there. And I'm like, well, that's okay. And there's a campground host who's at the next campground and he comes by visits, picks up trash, makes sure everything's okay. And he leaves. But for the whole week there, I'm all by myself. So one day I go on a little hike and there was there was something that I knew that they thought I was going to deal with. And I, I saw it and I didn't, I didn't fall for their ploy and um, not worth going into the details. But anyway, I come back and as I'm walking in the main entryway, there's trees and I'm going to go through a space in the trees. And then, then there's a loop with all the 
the campsites on it. So I'm approaching the trees and see nobody's been around. And later on, I would discover nobody was around. But somehow these people came out of nowhere. And they're not like normal acting people. There's these two guys that are walking like they're robots trying to learn how to act like humans. Now, some people say they say aliens who are trying to learn how to blend in. That did cross my mind. I'll admit it. They're dressed in like they just went to the the camping store and they bought themselves shoes and boots and work clothes. And they're carrying little tackle boxes and fishing poles. And they are walking like they just got dropped on a planet and told what to do. But it's like they're not even used to uneven ground. They're just, and they're walking up straight. They don't interact with each other. They're not like two guys who are just fishing and maybe they're even tired at the end of the day. Uh, You know, they just, they just seem like we're learning how to walk on earth. (laughs) And so they walk past me and dis- and I slow down because they're they're going to meet they're going to cross a pass the same time I get there if I keep at the same speed. So I slow down and I watch them go by and I even kind of stand and I'm like that was weird and then I start to walk again and now two more come and they're crossing and they're the same. All of them look like they're in new clothes, new boots, new tackle boxes, new fishing poles and they're just walking like that's all they know how to do and i'm like this is so weird so i i go real slow because i you know they're gonna cross so i let them cross and then they disappear there's trees and they just completely disappear so i keep on walking and now i see two more and they're coming from the south and the next day i would go south to see what's down there There are no trails. It's just rough, rough land, prickly bushes. There's a bunch of um, barbed wire fences where it had been um, broken up into maybe um, grazing areas or something. And then there's a lake, but it's like a good mile and a half. The easiest thing would be to come from where I was and just take the road. But these people come out of this field. It's like there's no tents there or anything. They come out of this field and they go to the water pump. Now, I had tried to fill my water jugs the day before, and it had been really difficult because this big old heavy pump is over here, and water would splash out and tip over my water jugs. So I really needed, I couldn't hold on to it and reach the end of the pump. So it had been a really difficult task. And I thought, oh, two other guys at the pump, even though they're weird acting, I'm going to run back, get my water, my last water jug. And I'm going to come up and cheerfully talk to them and get a sense of who these guys are and they can help me get my water. And so I just walked 100 feet or so to my campground, grabbed my water jug and went back and they were gone. And because it was so hard to do, they could not have filled their water jugs in that period of time. They just showed up to be the fifth and sixth weird acting person and then they completely disappeared. And I, for the next day and a half, I was looking for a camper, a trailer, a tent, nothing. These guys just disappeared. So they do weird shit just to freak you out so that you have such a weird story. You can never tell anybody and have them believe you. 
Oh my gosh. And, and, I, and that's exactly what it is, right? Cause then you go to tell somebody and they're like, Oh, you're delusional. Just like how the doctors labeled you, which is really, really sad because there's so many people that are dealing with this type of thing and there's really no help for it, you know, in a sense of all the time, you might find a good doctor here and there or somebody who will listen, but for the most part, it's so isolating because it does these one event sharing something like that makes people turn, turn away. Yeah. Here's another funny one. And it was very instructive. I was sitting, I would frequently sit up in bed and read until I got tired. And sometimes I would find myself just kind of like coming back from something like a, a daydream or a fugue state. And I wasn't exactly sure what I'd just been thinking of. And I'm wondering how long was I out? I was kind of trained to not pay attention to clocks. So I can have a lot of missing time and not know it that way. So I started wondering about maybe I should be tra- learning to, to again, to watch a clock so that I, I know how long I'm, I just track time better. I think I should be tracking time better, but, um, I just was wondering, is there something going on that I haven't been paying attention to? So one night I come out of this fugue state and it suddenly occurs to me that I want to climb out of my bed, you know, in an RV, you know, I'm climbing down off the high thing and stepping on the back of a bench and down. And, and I, I get halfway down and I have my foot on a step and I have my other foot stuck out behind me. And I'm, and I think in the next moment, I'm going to step down onto the floor of the camper. And instead I get frozen. And my arms are still on the bed. My one foot's on the step. My leg is reaching behind me. And I I get frozen. And I had just looked at the clock. Ten minutes later, I come back to consciousness again. And I've dropped down a little bit. But I'm still pretty much in the same position with my leg still suspended behind me. And that answered my question for me. Yes. They do, on a regular basis, do stuff to me, take me out of my head. I was unconscious. I didn't know what was going on. And they freeze me for a short period of time. So they must have thought, she's sitting in bed. She's going to stay frozen. And in the few seconds between their deciding to do that to me, in those couple seconds, I moved. But they still continued with whatever their plan was. And they didn't. Ex- I'm sure they did not expect to freeze me in a position whereby I would know what they did when they were done. Um, Way back in 2013, my boyfriend had gone to his high school reunion, so he was gone for two whole weeks. And I thought, well, this will be a good chance for me to, um, to try to track my time. I totally believed that being off the clock, not paying attention to clocks was freeing me from industrial society and time. And I'm living with the the moon and the sun and, and I don't need to know the time to the minutes. And I thought that was a certain, certain sort of freedom, but I think it was also training me not to be able to ever recognize when I had missing time, but I didn't know that. I started suspecting it later in my nomad years. Um, But anyway, back in 13, no, no, I had been suspecting it even then. So in 13, I said, okay, this would be a good chance for me to be a scientist, not be distracted by him. It's just me in the house and I'm going to set my alarm for every single hour and every hour of the day. And I made up these new daily sheets to track it. Every hour I'm going to write down when the thing goes off, 
what I just was doing for that last hour. And what I discovered was that I had so many of those times where the thing went off and I'm like, I don't know anything I did in the last hour. Or even, wow, the last time it was like two hours ago. What in the world happened? I don't know. So for two weeks, I kind of freaked myself out documenting very clearly that I have a lot of time in which they seem to be doing something to me where, I don't know, are they upgrading my programming? Are they programming me? Is this something new? Did somebody come in the house and do something to me? I don't know. But I do know that they do that to me. Once when I was in my trailer in the evening, I just suddenly had this thought that it would be nice to open the back door and step out on the bumper and just look around. And so I was kind of maybe kicking on my slippers or something to step out. And I suddenly had this like urgency, like you have to get out right now. And I'm hearing this helicopter that seems to be coming toward me. And I just about fell over myself, had an accident and got hurt because I, I suddenly, it was like my body was saying, now you don't wait two seconds to put your slipper on, get out there now. And I almost hurt myself getting the door open. And as I stepped out, rapidly almost falling here's a helicopter right over me and i thought so were they doing a test to see whether they could control me second by second so that i could completely exactly meet when this helicopter came for some reason because i'm telling myself yeah it'll be nice and some other part of me is like now 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 and it was alarming that i almost hurt myself trying to meet I was thinking I was just going out to see the night, but apparently I was supposed to be out in time for this helicopter. So that was upsetting to know that, yeah, they're just, they have the ability to override my own intentions and make me move when I, I didn't want to move. I, I had this idea that it would be nice, but no, they want me to move now and move by this moment. So it's it's very upsetting to know that there's these people able to do this for us. But it is what the Nazis wanted. They wanted highly controlled subjects. And um, I think that I'm a partially successful one that's useful enough to them that they stay with me um, and keep doing stuff to me, even though, I don't know, even though what? I don't know. I appreciate you sharing all of that. So I'm, I'm trying, I've tried to be a scientist about this because I recognized back in 1999 that the things that I was going through were just weird enough that I just wished that I had a better understanding of it. And I just thought I'll be a scientist. I will document everything and I'll try to be really, really careful about separating what happens, what I think about what happens, you know, what my emotions are. And then every time there's some spiritual intercession, those things get recorded because I need to focus on those and remember that I am cared for even despite all this. And, uh, and I think I've done a pretty good job of keeping a, a science record that 
has not helped me come to absolutely clear conclusions, but I'm still hoping that one day it will be a benefit to others and maybe even be a benefit to myself in just gathering data, gathering data, gathering data. And, um, and someday somebody will make sense of this. And I'm praying that we will be able to fight and, and win back our sovereignty as souls on this planet. But right now, we don't have it. And I think it's very important for people to know that there are forces trying very hard to take control of us. And I think whatever's done to us subjects, I think they intend to do to everybody. I believe that's their intention, and that's why we should all care. And on top of your journal. Thank you, Emma. You're so welcome. I love that you're so investigative <laughs> about what happened to you and that you do record it in so many places. And I'd love for you to talk about your book and where people can find it and um, okay. give people an idea of where you're at online, your websites and your YouTube. I'd love for people to go support you. And obviously this book has a lot of your story in it that you've recorded so people can learn even more about you that way. Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, I I used to have a website and then somebody, then I guess I didn't pay for it one year and someone stole it from me and I had to give it a new ending. I don't remember if it was .net and now it's .com or if it was .com now it's not .net. Do you remember rattlesnake fire dot? Yes. Let I me. don't remember if it's .com or .net. Here we go. Hold on. Anyway. Um, Rattlesnakefire.com. Is that it? Okay. Thank you. I should know my own book website, but you know, my poor mind sometimes. No worries. <laughs> so, um, I love the blurb. You know, a lot of really wonderful people have given me excellent blurbs there. So people should just check the website out. I have some excerpts. Um, and the, the pay page functions, but it's not like new and modern and professional. It's just kind of, I think, pathetic in some ways, but it works. Um, if you hit that pay, pay now button, I think I get an email and then I have a stock of books at home and I will either just sign it or if you want, I can endorse it saying to so-and-so. Uh, that actually has less value on the real sale market, just in case you care. Um, and there's a picture of the old book. And this might have been mind control, but I did not put one of those little UPC um, stamps on the back of my new second edition. So the first edition is the only one that has a place in the booksellers uh, databases because they go by those UPC numbers. So the old book with the rattlesnake and the fire on the front and uh, lots of little editing errors and a whole lot less art, that one you can find in the booksellers. In the new book, you can get from me and you can get it from lulu.com and you might find it elsewhere. But um, but anyway, buy the second edition from me uh, directly. And I think that's best to do the old fashioned way. So um, and then I also have a number of actually I have probably over 100 videos that I've done since 2010 on my YouTube channel, which is Paradigm Salon Video Singular Video. 
And since then, I've gotten kind of embarrassed by, and I think I might have had some mind control around this too. I took a whole lot of them down to private so that nobody can see them because they were me in the early years when I think I look at it and I go, oh, that's so pathetic. And I, I just made them private. But if you go to my other website, um, paradigmsalon. Is that when the dot net? Yep. I think it net. is. Yep. Right. And I've got the videos tab up there and almost all my videos are available. I think, I hope I need to do some work on here. I haven't kept up very well, but all those places are, you can source my, my videos over the years. And I think there's like a total of 10 hours or more wow. of videos that um, you can find on YouTube. And so what's on YouTube accessible to the public right now are just maybe the last couple years and the very first few years. Oh, look at that. See, I must have um, broken those links. Oh, if enough people write me, I'll get my act together and I will try to, um, <laughs> I'll try to do some web work. But I feel like I've become either allergic to the computer or maybe they've got some mind control in me that just makes me feel really dull whenever I think think of sitting down and focusing and then I just say not today maybe another day um but I do have good days every now and then and I get some stuff done but they're kind of few and far between but I'm doing my best I love it you've done a lot of free content for us you know and your book is a wealth of knowledge your your website is you also have your personal website too um if people want to see yeah the art that you do and just the more creative author, artist, activist, consultant side of you. I love this website too. Thank you. And I am very proud of my work as an activist and as a consultant. Um, I did a lot of good work until um, when I divorced my second husband, meaning I no longer had a handler that they could depend on. Then, uh, I just kind of became incapacitated and unable to work. So for all my activism and consulting, I'm very, very proud of. And it pretty much ended in 93, unfortunately. And I've just been kind of like coping and trying to keep myself together. But yeah, there's a lot of fun things there. There's when I was at the Smithsonian Institution uh, fighting for, for Mount Graham. And we went to the Smithsonian because they were uh, part of this astrophysical project putting a telescope where it did not belong and uh, i used to promote solar ovens a lot that was just fun that was just a hobby for me to show people how to solar cook and uh yeah i feel like i've um i've i've enjoyed my life that was a picture um taken in afghanistan when i was 21 years old and this little bird landed on my finger and my father was there and he just snapped a picture that i have always loved you're so <sighs> beautiful. Oh my goodness. You're still beautiful now, but it's really fun looking at photos of you in action doing the things that, you know, you did your whole life that you were really passionate about. That's so awesome that you have all these photos. And you have so many great Thank you. you put together so much for free for us. You know, and I encourage people when a survivor is is speaking and when they're out there sharing information, Please go purchase her book if you can. This book is fantastic, you guys. It's awesome. She makes it really accessible. You get it right from her. You get a signed copy right from Jean herself, which is really fun. 
Um, and she has her own YouTube channel, like she said, Paradigm Salon Video. I will have that linked in the show notes for you guys. I will put the purchase page for her book. That way you guys can go right on there, check it out. Look at the excerpts she has. She actually has a few in here for you guys to go get a sneak peek. Um, and then she, her homepage is great too. She has a lot of great endorsements, like she said. So you guys can read a little bit about what people say. So I would love if you guys went and supported her and got her work and learned more about her story. There's a lot of really great information in here. I know all of you here are here to learn. And all of these books are gold mines, And they're so inexpensive for you guys to take home and have create a library of these testimonies and of all of this information. You know, like Jean said, stuff gets deleted from the internet too. So we're so internet dependent. Sometimes I really love my whole library that I have of all these books. I have every survivor book that I can possibly get my hands on and nobody can ever take them from me, you know, whether these websites come down or not. So I would love if you guys went and supported her work and checking out her website and all the information that she has and her videos and Jean, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about today or say? No, I'm I'm kind of fatiguing as I expected to after a couple hours. And so, and this is a good length of time for others to watch. And we'll just, if we want to talk about more, we'll come do a part three later. Let's do it. I would love been- that. I really appreciate you coming on, Jean. You're such a beautiful soul. You're an amazing speaker. You have such an eloquent way of talking about really hard things and making them engaging with people. You're so animated whenever you talk and, you know, (laughs) you make, you make really dark topics palatable. And I know I speak on behalf of everybody. We all appreciate you and all the work that you've done on your book, on your videos, on your websites. You've done all this really by yourself. And I think it's just incredible that you've done all of this for us. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart for all the free time that you spend on these interviews and on all the work that you do and putting this incredible book together for us. I really, really appreciate it, Jean. And you're just such a a beautiful and amazing soul. Thank you, Emma, so much. I just don't know what more to say. I so appreciate you for giving me this opportunity. And I just wanted to add one thing we talked about last time and not this time. One of the things they did to me was they gave me um, Morgellons disease, which is Lyme disease plus. And I have been trying to heal. For, I've had it for nine years. I've been trying to heal from it, but I only started working with the doctor a little while ago. And it they say it takes like at least two or three years of treatment to fully get rid of it. And, and some people don't know that you ever get rid of it. So I'm dealing with this disease attacking my muscles, which make me extremely tired and lethargic and hoping that I'm doing the treatment well enough that it doesn't attack my nervous system and brain because that is the, the worst outcome that does happen. So I'm struggling against this. And um, so I just want to not have people think that I'm just... Like, what's wrong with her? Why can't she get on her website? Well, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, um, I'm glad to I'm glad to be inspired by yours, your invitation and your work. You do inspire me, and that helps overcome these other things that I'm struggling against. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Emma. And um, well, and thanks everybody who will just take a little bit of time and see what information. I put together because I agree with you. I think I've got a lot of good data on those websites, which I created a while back. Um, they're not that well updated, but there is still good info there. So um, thank you for that, Emma. 
And thanks to all the listeners who just want to see what I pulled together. I think it's important stuff for us to know. So thanks again. It is. And thank you, Jean. I will have everything listed in the show notes that way. And no matter what platform you're on, you guys just go in the show notes. You guys can just click and it'll redirect you to her website, to her book link, to her YouTube channel and to her personal webpage. So go check all of that out. There is a lot of great information on there. She's done it all for free. Purchase her book. It's phenomenal. You guys, you get a signed copy. That's so cool. A lot of authors, you don't have that opportunity. That's such a nice touch. So go support her. You guys, I'll have all of that in the show notes. I will have all of my links in the show notes to connect with me. Also, I never know, you know, what, what platforms will keep me and which ones won't. So stay up to date with me on Substack, follow me on YouTube, other platforms, go connect with Jean, connect with all of us. We love you guys so much and couldn't do this without you. God bless you all. And we will see you next time.